This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Banfield on this Monday night. And it is a night that I, I'm going to say something weird. I hope it's been uh, just another Monday for you and the people that you love. I actually really hope that this was just a routine and mundane Monday, like work, school, whatever, dinner, TV, boring. I know that's weird to say it, but it is a luxury if you had a mundane, boring, routine day. Because for four families that we have come to know and love, it has not been that. It has been anything but that. Because this date, November 13th, will never, ever, ever be routine or boring or plain or average. It will just always be awful. On this date exactly one year ago, their innocent kids, Kaylee Gonzalez, Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin were all slashed to death in a home that those young women shared in Moscow, Idaho. All four were students at the University of Idaho. The house was just off campus, but really, it was really right in the middle of it all. Not one of those kids had the slightest idea that after a typical Saturday night out at a frat party in a local bar and a food truck, they had no idea they wouldn't live to see Sunday night. So on this devastating first anniversary of those inexplicable murders, those families and the rest of us who have made this journey with them, we are waiting for justice. Justice in the form of a quadruple murder trial for the criminology student who was arrested 2,000 miles away from 1122 King Road, six weeks later. You know his name. But on this night, on this night that is all about Kaylee and Maddie and Zana and Ethan, how about this? How about I don't say it? How about I just don't use that name? We don't know when that trial uh, for the defendant is going to happen. It was supposed to have started more than a month ago, which I have to be really honest with you. That is like the legal equivalent of lightning speed, like 10 months from arrest. Sure enough, though, uh, the suspect did decide to waive his right to what's called the speedy trial, and he's allowed to do that. And tonight, um, all we know for sure is that whenever it is going to happen, you and I are going to be able to see it. Because as we've reported in detail on this program, the one thing, the one major thing that the state and the defense have agreed upon is no cameras in the courtroom for the trial and that a gag order should be uh, in place. But lucky for all of us who care about openness and transparency, the judge said no to both prosecution and defense and agreed instead with the efforts of the press and some of the family members to open up the digital doors of this trial and at least let one camera stay. 
And I can also say this. Even if the accused doesn't face a jury for another year or even two years, maybe more, it is not going to mean justice denied. I get it. I get it. We all want our killers caught and tried and convicted, just like we see on TV. I watch Law and Order. I know. It only takes 60 minutes. Sometimes these people are actually adjudicated quickly, but sometimes they're not even arrested for many, many years. Like in the case of Libby German and Abby Williams, it took five and a half years to make an arrest. Five and a half. Their families waited that long to see a suspect in these murders arrested. And it happened in Delphi, Indiana. And now Richard Allen has actually been locked up for a full year with no trial. No trial date even on the horizon at this point. And as we speak, it's not even clear who is or who is not representing them. So they could be starting from scratch once they get a lawyer in place. It could take several more years after that even to get that case to trial. So patience on that one. And then do you remember Elizabeth Smart? She is the 15-year-old Utah girl who was kidnapped from her home back in 20, uh, 20, 2002. Gosh, I got to go back to the OOs. Uh, Elizabeth just turned 36 a week ago. Contemplate that. But it took more than two decades um, or more than two decades ago, uh, this crime happened. And, and she, you'll remember, she was held for nine months by a deranged man and his wife, both of them arrested in 03 at the time that Elizabeth was rescued from them. Thank Jesus. But any guesses on how long it took for those two people to be tried and convicted? Take a stiff belt here. Um, in the case of the wife, it was six years Six years, and only then, after she pleaded, like no trial, she actually ended up pleading. For the husband, he wasn't put away, and by the way, he did get a life sentence, but he wasn't put away until 2011, eight years after he was arrested. Now, most of that had to do with both of them uh, being mentally incompetent uh, to stand trial, but there were some other issues too, and talk about justice delayed on that one. Even the doomsday mom, Lori Vallow, tied up the legal system in her state for more than three years. And that's only if you count the time between the horrible discovery of her children's remains buried in her new husband's backyard and the day that she was sentenced to three consecutive life terms in an Idaho prison. But ultimately, from the time the kids were killed to the time the cell doors clanged shut behind her, it was a total of four years. If you think those cases are aberrations or abominations, I get it. Again, you know, I get it. But murder cases are really hard. They are hard to solve and they are hard to try. And the quadruple murder case in Moscow is hard times infinity. The crime scene alone, an off-campus party house, just thinking about the forensics gives me vertigo. Hundreds of kids who have been there for parties over the years. Dozens and dozens of past tenants over the years who lived there, all leaving behind their DNA. And you and I both know that college houses are not known for being cleaned very often. So just try to process all of that. Test all of those variables, all those DNA samples. Hundreds. Attorneys who try murder cases on either side are the brain surgeons and the rock stars of their field for, for good reason. I'm joined now by one of them. Richard Block is a criminal defense attorney in where else? 
Idaho, and he's back with me on the program. Richard, thanks for being here on this anniversary. Are you surprised that it has been a year and we still don't have a trial date? Actually, thanks for having me. I'm not surprised at all. I mean, a case like this, you would expect at least two or three years before it gets to trial, if not quite a bit more. It's an incredibly complicated case, lots of players, lots of different types of evidence. These things take forever. I mean, what people don't realize is that a lawyer who spends 15 minutes in a courtroom might spend three or four hours preparing for that 15 minutes. It takes a really long time to get ready for a multi-week trial. Uh, And when you're talking about a death penalty case, quadruple those times. Right. Four. Four victims in this case. It is a quadruple murder, and some single murders or double murders can take, as we just reported, upwards of five or more years. So in this particular case, um, the defendant uh, chose to waive his right to speedy trial. And, you know, I'm not sure everybody always understands why you would or wouldn't do that. Were you surprised he did it? And maybe give a little color as to what that means. Not surprised at all about it. Frankly, it's pretty normal to see a speedy trial waived or waived for a period of time to allow continuances and other things. Uh, From a defense point of view, like when I'm thinking about a case uh, in general, prosecution's case is best on the first day they filed it. And it can only get worse. Only then can the defense start poking holes in their evidence, looking for the flaws, digging up their own witnesses, digging up their own evidence, and building their own case. So for a defendant, you generally want as much time as you can get. Obviously, you're battling that between that and especially when you've got a defendant sitting in jail, you don't want an innocent person sitting in jail when they don't need to be. So you want to move as quickly as you can reasonably do. But time is generally on the defense's side in these things. And even here, prosecution's still got to get ready for the case, too. It's a tremendous amount of work to get all this stuff ready. I'm not surprised at all that he waived speedy trial to get himself some extra time to get ready to dig up that evidence, dig up those witnesses. Yeah, and the other thing is you don't want to get it wrong. You don't want an appellate decision to go the opposite way. You want to get it right. You want to have your all your I's and your T's all crossed and dotted and all the rest um, before you get into that courtroom. So the, the public defender in this case has fought the prosecutors on discovery, on DNA testing, on police training, on the grand jury process. Is this a good strategy, or do you see this as, that's all she's got? Uh, This is a damn good strategy. You want to fight on every one of these things, because when you're talking about a death penalty case, you leave no stone unturned as a defense attorney. There is nowhere you don't go. There's no one you don't interview. There is nothing you don't do. There's no motion you don't file. You fight every little thing in a death penalty case, because there's nothing worse. It's irreversible, the death penalty. So you fight every little, little thing. And uh, here, where there's so much stuff to get out, out, like the DNA is one thing where it's obvious that there's tons of stuff they're trying to look for because the DNA evidence here is very minute. And when you're looking at DNA, it's not the thing that everybody thinks where it's simply ones and zeros and it's yes or no. DNA is pretty complicated. There are different algorithms used to produce those results. There's different ways to interpret those results. And having all the information is really necessary so your DNA experts on the defense side can look at it and see if the other side got it right or if there is something wrong. 
So uh, them going after all that DNA evidence, they're doing the right thing. They absolutely need that. About 10 seconds left. Uh, do you have an over-under on when we'll see opening statements, and do you think we'll see opening statements or a plea deal? I think you're looking for at least another year, year and a half until you're seeing opening statements. I couldn't begin to tell you if we're going to see opening statements or a plea deal in this. Uh, I'm not involved in the case, so I don't have the details of it, I imagine, but that a year, year and a half until we're going to trial, at least. Richard Block, it's, uh, it's great to have you. Can't, um, can't thank you enough on this anniversary for being with us. Thank you for having me. Let's go out to, um, of all places, Idaho, where Brian Enton has become intimately familiar with a very sad location, 1122 King Road and Moscow, Idaho. He joins us there live now. Brian? Yeah, Ashley, we are on the University of Idaho campus. It was really a somber evening here uh, on campus. For the last hour, the students of this university, uh, led by members of Pi Beta Phi, Xana and Maddie's sorority, Sigma Chi, uh, where Ethan was a member, uh, and Alpha Phi, that was Kaylee's sorority, they held a vigil in memory of those four students whose lives were so tragically cut short by that vicious crime uh, one year ago. And it, it was emotional, you know, it was, it was more emotional than I expected. Uh, we got out there about a half an hour before the vigil started, with this big empty field, very, very dark. It's cold and it's rainy tonight. Uh, and it was just silent and there was no one there. And within about 15 minutes, slowly in every direction we looked, we saw just crowds and crowds of students from here on campus in big groups from the different fraternities and sororities and student groups, just walking in silence to this field. And they all gathered and there were suddenly thousands of kids standing there. No one was saying a word. And they waited for the vigil to begin and you, you could hear sniffling. Uh, there were people crying. They all were holding candles. You can see the video there, Ashley. Um, and, and you realize that a year has gone by, but here on this campus, it doesn't feel like a year. For so many of the students here and, and the faculty and the people who live in this little, quaint, beautiful college town where nothing like this has ever happened, it feels like this just happened last week or a month ago. And I think one of the reasons for that, uh, at least based on the people who we've spoken to out here, uh, is because the court proceedings are ongoing. You just uh, were, were talking about it with your guests, with the Idaho attorney. This is going to take a long time, and it's difficult for people here to be able to move on and to really grieve uh, when Brian Koberger is sitting in a jail cell just a couple of blocks from where I'm standing on the University of Idaho campus. Everything is so close here. Until there's a trial, the people here, here feel like uh, they can't move on. Another thing that struck me out at the vigil was, um, I, th I think we forget that these are college kids. I mean, these are, these are young kids um, who haven't dealt with tragedy before. I mean, let alone something as gruesome and horrific as this. And they came here to have the best time of their life, to bond with friends and to learn. Uh, and, and they've dealt with something that most people cannot even fathom, and they are still dealing with it. I want you to listen um, to what several of the students said at the vigil a little while ago. To know Ethan, Zana, Madison, and Kaylee was to love Ethan, Zana, Madison, and Kaylee. The adversity this university has had to go through over the past year, the strength it's taken to persevere, 
the support from every person on this campus is what makes U of I so special. The importance of the Vandal family is something that can't be put into words. There's absolutely no other family I'd rather be a part of. Community is the antidote to emotional trauma. Community is healing. Community is how we carry on together. Tonight is a testament to the strength of the Vandal family. As you leave here tonight, I urge all of you to spend time with those you love. Zanna, Ethan, Kaylee, and Maddie were all social butterflies as they had an impact on countless individuals. They were vandals through and through, all sharing their lives with those around them. I hold faith that they will leave a lasting legacy upon all of us. And you heard him just say uh, that they were social butterflies. Uh, these victims, Ethan, Zanna, Maddie, and Kaylee. Uh, they were involved on campus. They knew so many people. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that people here are having such a hard time moving on, because so many people knew the victims right there, were touched by them, uh, and are still struggling uh, with the loss. Later on tonight, I'm going to talk with uh, a local journalist. Her name is Carrie Sandinay. Uh, you know, we come in and out. We come to all the court hearings, Ashley. Uh, but there are people who, who have lived here for a long time, like Carrie. She's with the Lewiston Tribune. She knows the players. She's covered the prosecutor. She's covered the judge. She knows the community. Um, and she's going to be able to tell us what's been happening behind the scenes, why she feels the community has confidence in the prosecution. There's a lot we don't know. I mean, there's the gag order, uh, but she's got details about why she feels that, that they're building a strong case, and she's going to tell us a little bit about what, what's been happening behind the scenes, plus new details on what happened in that house on King Road one year ago today. We've got all that coming up uh, later in the show. Ashley? Brian, thank you. Thank you so much. Brian is live and will be for uh, the rest of this program. In the meantime, after the break, Steve Gonzalez, Kaylee's dad, joining me on this very sad anniversary to let us know how things are going for that family. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I am joined now by Steve Gonzalez, who has spent the last year trying to put the pieces back together of his life and his family since the horrible um, crime that was committed at the University of Idaho. Steve, thank you for, for being with me. It's so hard uh, to, to join you um, because of the circumstances that we always talk about, and especially on a day like today. First and foremost, does it even feel like it's been a year? It's gone by sometimes fast and other times it's just dragged on, couldn't, couldn't come fast enough. Um, we'd always hoped out that there would be a schedule at a year, you know, that we would know the dates that we would be eventually going to court for this. Unfortunately, that's not going to be the case. So, you know, it's kind of feels like a, it's a slow process at this point. If you had to write the book um, about what it's like for you and your family to have gone through this. Um, one day you're, you're just like the rest of us and the next day you know more than almost all of us will ever know. What would that lead chapter be? 
for us in our family, um, we're a pretty large family, so we couldn't really hide from this. Uh, the girls had online presence. They always will. That's just the way life is these days. So, uh, I just jumped in, I jumped ahead and we became active participants in the investigation. Um, nobody knows their, you know, their sister, like her brother and her sisters. So, uh, we just kind of keep rallied together and just said, you know, what are the account passwords? Log on to these things, start getting information, gathering it up, and uh, we'll work with the, the, the investigators, and we'll turn this thing around as fast as we possibly can. I think we we went from being victims to, you know, being active, actively involved in this. Once we realized that we had some of the footage before even the officers did, like the uh, grub phone and all that, that we contacted the driver we had a sense that we were moving fast and um, we could be, we could be active in this and we could make a difference. Did you ever feel, however, once you became active and then became the subject of, you know, of unfair online social media, this is now sort of what we deal with in our, um, in our day and age. Did you ever feel like just retreating back into the, um, into the shadows and, 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 and staying quiet and waiting for this process to play out? Um, sure, you might think about it, but I think about what my daughter went through, and um, it snaps me out of feeling sorry for myself and lets me know that um, I have a job to do. It's my job to protect my daughter, and there's only so much I can do now, but um, I need to do as much as I possibly can and uh, even if it's inconvenience, if people are going to attack me, that's fine. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. Um, these people wouldn't say that's a lot of that stuff if you were there in person. They, you know, everyone feels like uh, their opinions are a little bit louder when they're online. And um, it's just natural. I mean, I don't worry about it. I'm trying to protect my, my, my kids. So if they attack me, if they're focused on me, then they're not focused on them. And uh, when we were less, when I was less vocal, they were getting... Um, you know, psychics and all these crazy people coming after them, trying to contact them. So I was like, you know, guys, there's a place for you, but let's try to stay away from uh, some of this stuff online and direct them towards me. And, um, you know, we'll vet them out. My lawyer vets people out, make sure that uh, they have the right backing and they are who they say they are, stuff like that. It's like they have no filter or they want to be relevant in some way, no matter what the cost. You know, uh, between our pictures, um, there are pictures of, of Kaylee flashing. And, she, you know, she's, she's just beautiful and vibrant. And her smile just was so electric. Um, and this is all we know about your daughter. What can you tell us that we don't know about Kaylee? Well, you you review all your kids, and you, each kid has their own like narrative and their story. Kaylee was one that was going to shake the world. Um, when she had her job, I, her her direct manager shared some of the uh, notes from behind the scenes. She did some presentations, um, and and the vice president of the company was like, "This Kaylee girl is very impressive. I keep seeing her, and I keep hearing her name. You know, where where are we going to put her? And we're going to definitely bring her on because she's doing an internship." And um, she didn't see those things. She never got to see those because that, this was behind the scenes. These guys provided this information to us after all this. 
So um, I feel like she really was going to change the world, and she did change the world. And that's part of the reason why we're out here talking and, and we have our own family page. We're getting um, photos and videos uh, and stories of people who spent their time with her. I've yet to come across somebody who um, has had anything negative to say, which people think, oh, no one will tell you that. But, yeah, I mean, I got siblings and they'll, they'll tell, uh, you know, stories about their, you know, their brother, or their sister. They're not going to hold back. So, um I think she found a way to live in a big family and learned, uh, you know, the, the right ways to get along with people. And, and that showed um, later on in her life when she was able to go to college and meet all these people. I want to ask you one last question. Have you prepared for life after a trial? Yeah, we, we me and my son, we're going to be going to Puerto Rico. Uh, we're going to be looking at some real estate out there. Um, We've, we spend a lot of time in the Caribbean. The girls love the Caribbean. So, um, yeah, we, we, we look forward to the day that this is over and we could just disappear into a small community and we don't have to deal with any of this drama or go through any of this stuff anymore. Steve Gonzalez, our thoughts, our hearts, and our um, prayers are with you and your family on this uh, on this grim anniversary. I'm very thankful that you shared these lovely thoughts um, of Kaylee with us, and um, and I'm wishing you all the best. Thank you for this. Thank you. And just as Steve said, the victims' families, they have found the court process excruciatingly slow as they are eager to get justice uh, and see the man accused of murdering the four students face a trial. It is something they say they need to see happen so that they can move on and grieve. The suspect, 28-year-old Brian Koberger, uh, was arrested on December 30th at his parents' home in Pennsylvania. You remember, uh, the Ph.D. criminology student at Washington State University was linked by familial DNA to DNA on a knife sheath found next to Maddie Mogan's body. Now, Koberger was extradited back to Idaho where he faces four counts of first-degree murder and possibly uh, the death penalty. But tonight, uh, Koberger sits behind bars in the Lataw County Jail. Again, it's not very far from where I'm standing. This is a, a small town, uh, just blocks from the boarded-up house on King Road. His trial right now is stuck in limbo. We don't have a timeline. The scheduled trial date, October 2nd, that has now come and gone. And part of the reason for the delay is that Koberger waived his right to a speedy trial, and his defense team has requested uh, even more time to review evidence. There is now a December 1st deadline for them to get some of this new evidence, but we don't know how long that's going to take. They want to know the process prosecutors used to collect and match Koberger's DNA to the crime scene. DNA is arguably the strongest piece of evidence against him, one of the biggest parts of the probable cause affidavit that we've seen. Prosecutors are expected to hand over uh, those additional materials related to DNA, but right now both sides, they keep going back and forth uh, with all sorts of motions, deciding what the trial will look like, and there may even be a change of venue on the horizon. Uh, we haven't heard about that officially, but there's talk. Is it possible they can move this case to Boise, Idaho? Is the jury pool just too small here uh, in Moscow, Idaho? Are people too familiar with the case here? Do they know the details? Do they know the victims? Do they know the victims' families? It could be possible they try to move the case. Uh, that's something we're going to have to keep uh, a close eye on. But still to come tonight, uh, we've got never before heard details about the murders and investigation and the upcoming trial. Very interesting information about the prosecutor's legal background. Look, there are people on the ground here 
who know the prosecutor, have covered him for a long time. They know about the convictions that he's gotten in other difficult cases. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, that's coming up ap- after the break. Also, new information about the crime scene. Turns out it may have been even worse than what we have heard so far. That's coming up next. Welcome back to our exclusive coverage of the Idaho student murders. One year ago today, it's, it's hard to believe, four college students were brutally stabbed to death in their beds. Brian Koberger is set to stand trial for their murders. Uh, even though it's been a year, we are still learning new things about the case. We still don't know exactly when the trial will be. Could be a year, could be two years by now. Uh, so much of the new information we're learning is because of great work by journalists uh, like Carrie Sandanay. And I want to bring Carrie in. Um, she is a reporter with the Lewiston Tribune. Carrie, Hi. I've become uh, friends with you. She, Carrie sits next to me in the courtroom. She's at every court hearing. You've been a, a wonderful resource for me because you know the community so well. And we really appreciate you being here with us tonight on on. I hate to call it the anniversary. Some people keep saying that. It sounds weird saying that. The mm-hmm. one-year mark since the awful murders in this town. Um, I mean, you live in this area. You've covered it for a long time. You were at the vigil tonight. Right. How do you feel the community's doing a year out? I was, um, I was happy to hear the students say tonight that they're able to remember their friends that they lost with happy memories, good memories. They can look at photos now without crying. Uh, that gave me a lot of hope. Yeah, I was surprised um, to see such close friends of Ethan and Maddie uh, and Zana and Kaylee speak tonight. I mean, you know, you, you know how traumatized they all are, but they were really brave tonight. Yes, they did a wonderful job. I thought it was um, a moving vigil, and I was impressed. I want to talk to you about the court process, um, okay. because you know the players involved, because mm-hmm. you covered this area very well. First of all, Prosecutor Bill Thompson... Um, you know, there's a gag order. There's a lot we don't know. What's your perception of how he's handling things so far? I think this community has a lot of confidence in the prosecutor. I covered a murder trial here a few years ago. Uh, that was the Charles Capone case. And Thompson was able to get a conviction even though there was, the body was never found. And to this day has never been found. Yeah, and we know, I mean, you know, covering crime... Uh, you know, a conviction without a body is difficult. Right. Doesn't happen a lot. That's right. And he did a, he worked well. Um, they put together a good case with the Moscow Police Department and the Idaho State Police. And they worked really well with other agencies, which I see in this case as well. There's a lot of agencies working together and collaborating. Yeah, I think there's this feeling on the outside. It's a small town. It's a small police department. I think the prosecutor's office only has a couple of attorneys. You know, Bill Thompson's the the elected state attorney who actually tries cases, which is kind of unheard of in a big city. There's this feeling like, are they really ready for something of this magnitude? I mean, four young people dead, a death penalty on the table, but you you get the sense they are. Yes, I do. And I, I noticed uh, right away they called in the FBI and larger agencies for assistance, and I think they um, they are ready. A lot of people are wondering, and I, I talked about it in our last segment, about um, the possibility of a change of venue. You know, do, do people in this area just know the case too well? Would it be hard to find a jury? What's your, what's your feeling about that? Well, I'm interested in that. I, I've been wondering the same, if they will seek a change of venue, and it hasn't happened yet, so I don't know. And you know this area. I mean, obviously we're in Moscow. 
people in town here are very familiar with the case, but Lataw County is a big county. I mean, couldn't they get jurors? You know, it's, it's interesting. I talked to Keely Gonzalez's dad last week, and he said, I feel like the jurors should be farmers because they don't watch a lot of news. Yeah. They're out there doing their thing. Like, is it possible, do you think, that they could find people who, who don't, you know, who, who are unbiased with the whole thing? Well, sure, they have to. And um, they're going to go through a very long process to make sure they get juries, you know, jury members who aren't already biased. Yeah. What's your um, thoughts on the judge so far? I mean, you're, you're, in, you're in all the hearings with me. Um, you know, initially I got the vibe like he was kind of annoyed by the media, and the last hearing seemed to kind of come around, said cameras can stay. Um, what do we know about Judge Judge? And Judge Judge, by the way, his last name is Judge, so it <laughs> right. sounds weird, but it, it's Judge Judge. Right. Um, I have been told by people in uh, attorneys that he's a great judge, and he does his homework, and he, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And I, I feel like he's been he's been good in the hearings that we've gone to. Um, in terms of the crime scene, I mean, you started reporting on this case very early on because you're local. Mm-hmm. What have, I mean, we, we know that it's, it was gruesome. I mean, it was a stabbing of four young people. What, what have, you, have you heard? Um, well, when it initially happened, we didn't know what had occurred at that house. We thought maybe it was carbon monoxide poisoning or nobody really fathomed that this had happened until some details came out. And I know that um, from what I've heard that it's very, it was a very traumatic scene for first responders. They'd never seen anything like that in their lives. Yeah, we've reported and, and heard from, you know, young officers on the Moscow police force who were among the first um, to get to the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is, a, this is a small town. I mean, they don't deal with a lot of homicides, let right. alone something quite like this. And you just have to imagine what they all must be going through even a year later. Oh, yes. I'm sure they required counseling, <laughs> a lot of them. It was uh, horrific. Uh, as you know, there was blood dripping down this house, the side of the house. I mean, it was, uh, it was brand new territory for a lot of them, um, everyone. <laughs> Yeah, you included, I mm, guess. Yes, yeah. yes, for well, sure. Well, Carrie, we appreciate your time tonight. It's always so nice to talk to you. Yes. Thank you for, like, taking me under your wing a little oh, bit in the yes, courtroom, giving course. me the local uh, information and everything. Uh, I'll let you, I know you have to write your story tonight I know. also. I'm on so, deadline, I know, so. so we'll let you go. Thank you, <laughs> okay. Carrie, though. You. Um, it's interesting, you know, even for the local reporters here in town, this is, um, this is something they never thought that they were going to have to cover, something quite like this. It's, it's been different for them and and you hear from Carrie I mean this is even for her this whole thing has been uh, traumatizing to some extent so it's it's, it's awful for everybody here um, but but still to come tonight there are other stories that uh, that we are following very very closely including today's eye-opening testimony from the Caitlin Armstrong murder trial we are still over uh, all over that today on the stand we heard from the person who took Armstrong to the gun range and taught her about guns how was she acting on the range what did she say that person was on the stand we're going to give you the information we're going to tell you about what happened that's coming up next Okay, we are live tonight in Moscow, Idaho, covering uh, the one-year mark of the slaughter of four University of Idaho students. Uh, just a, Really just a, 
a sad and, and very emotional night here uh, on the University of Idaho campus. We'll get, get back to that in a moment, but there are several other developing stories I want to tell you about tonight. We had to squeeze into the show because there were some uh, big moments in court, beginning with the manhunt, though, uh, for escaped serial rape suspect Sean Williams. Williams escaped from a prison transport 26 days ago in Greenville, Tennessee. He has been on the run ever since. They still haven't been able to catch this guy. He's accused of drugging and raping several women at large parties he threw in an apartment building uh, that he owned. He faces charges including production of child pornography, child rape, aggravated sexual assault, sexual exploitation of a minor. This is not the kind of guy that you want on the run. Uh, News Nation correspondent Brooke Schaefer, she has been all over this case for us since the very beginning. She's got the update tonight. Uh, Brooke, tell us what's the latest. Yeah, well, Brian, you said it. Now close to a month that Sean Williams has been on the run. We have been checking in with police periodically. We checked in with them again today and still no updates on where this guy is or how he was even able to escape from that prison transport van. But I can tell you that Sean Williams is pretty much the talk of the town, especially here in downtown Johnsonville, Tennessee. Uh, This is where he used to live. He used to throw those big parties you mentioned in his apartment on the fifth floor of a building down here. Um, And as we've been on the ground here, a lot of people have come up to us asking us what we're reporting on. Uh, The second we tell them about it, they either knew Sean Williams personally or they knew his reputation around here. Um, And with that, there is a lot of speculation on his escape. A lot of people wondering whether he had help escaping uh, from that prison van. And U.S. Marshals, we can tell you, are looking into that tonight as they continue to search for this alleged serial rapist. They are telling people he is not only dangerous, but desperate. Brian? Oh, what a mess. Let's just hope that they catch this guy soon. Uh, Brooke Schaefer, thank you for the update. We know that you'll stay on it. Uh, let's move on now, though, to Caitlin Armstrong and guns. That was a major theme of her murder trial today. We heard from a woman who took Armstrong to the gun range and actually taught her about guns. Was she simply trying to protect herself or was she learning how to kill News Nation national correspondent Alex Capriello, uh, he was in the courtroom today. It was a fascinating day of testimony here in Austin, Texas. We heard from Caitlin Armstrong's friends, APD detectives, as well as forensic experts who specialize in ballistic testing. We heard from one woman, Caitlin Armstrong's friend, who says she was the one who taught her how to use a 9mm pistol, the same gun that prosecutors say was used to execute Mo Wilson. She called Armstrong at the time an amateur shooter, but said she was highly motivated to learn how to use the gun and absorbed every single detail. Also, receipts from a gun range showed that a credit card belonging to Christine Armstrong, Caitlin's sister, was used to buy 50 rounds of 9mm ammunition. That really leaves jurors to wonder just how clued in this sister might have been to Caitlin's plans all along. Keep in mind, Caitlin used Christine's passport to escape to Costa Rica. Christine is on the witness list, although it's unclear whether or not she will be called to testify. 
Also, today's proceedings ended with a very thorough deep dive into weapons and bullet testing. The prosecution spending nearly an hour going into how that entire process works. But unfortunately, that strategy may have backfired on them. To me, it looked as if some jury members might have been bored during that entire ordeal. And while the expert testified that the shell casings found at the crime scene are a match to the 9mm weapon that Armstrong owned, the defense made sure that the jury knew that that was his subjective opinion and not an exact science. Court resumes tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern. Wow, wild. Another wild day in court. Alex Capriello, he has been all over the Caitlin Armstrong trial, and he will be back in court tomorrow. We'll, of course, uh, keep you updated. Meanwhile, though, here in Moscow, Idaho, they've been immersed here in really just sadness, mourning and healing. Uh, today, uh, it, it, was, it, it was different. Look, I came into this wondering... Is this going to feel different here in town? Is this going to feel different for the families? They're in grief every day for the last year. What, what makes the one-year mark actually stand out? Is this just something blown up by the media, or does it, does it really have a different impact on them? I found out the answer to that. I'm going to share my final thoughts on that and what the families are going through, what today really symbolizes. we got to keep the focus on the victims. Uh, that's coming up right after this. We are live from the University of Idaho campus in Moscow, Idaho, where a vigil just ended a little while ago, uh, remembering the four students here who were brutally murdered one year ago. Uh, When when I first started thinking about today, what it meant for the people involved, um, I I wondered what one year passing like really meant. So many people were calling it the one year anniversary of the Idaho murders, which I get technically, I guess it is an anniversary, but. That word just never sounded right when we're talking about such an awful tragedy. Honestly, I I really wasn't crazy about making today into a big deal. I I guess I just wondered if the significance of the one-year mark was something manufactured by the media um, or if it really actually meant something for the families. I I, I figured they grieve every day. Today is probably like all the other days uh, they've had to endure for the past year. But then I I started talking to them, and, and I realized that today actually is different for them. It actually feels different for them, and it's harder than the other days, they say. Kaylee Gonzalez's parents described it to me, uh, and, and once they did, it all sort of made sense and clicked. Now that it has been one year, they explained, it means that they have had every holiday without Kaylee for a whole year. Her birthday passed, her parents' and siblings' birthdays that she loved celebrating. She loved it, they said. Those have now passed. Something about a full year going by, they say, is much, much harder. You know, time passing, it can certainly help heal pain. We all know that with losses that we've had in our lives. But, but in other ways, it can, it, it can also make it worse. Um, like for Kaylee's baby sister, she's realizing that one day she's going to be older than her big sister. That's something I never thought about. But for Kaylee's baby sister, uh, it's something she now dreads. It's, it's going to become where she's older than her older sister. Ethan Chapin's family says they spent today taking some time to pause and remember all the good Ethan brought uh, into the world. Ethan was a triplet. Remember that? When I talked to Ethan's mom last, she was telling me how when you're a triplet, you're the mom of triplets, you spend your entire life counting to three. From the time Ethan and his siblings were little, she would always count to three to make sure they were all counted for. The grocery store, at the park, she was going one, two, three. 
Now she only goes one, two, because Ethan is gone. Maddie Mogan's father, Ben Mogan, called Maddie a little angel today in an interview. Ben says, having her in my life. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.